Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. September 10, 2001 was a normal day in America and around the Bay Area. There was violence, a shooting rampage in Sacramento, the murder of a family in Bernal Heights. Democrats were hitting President George W. Bush on the sluggish economy. Barry Bonds reached 63 home runs. There had been a fire in Calaveras County. Their Chronicle ran an interview with a member of Players United, a violence prevention group. The Dow Industrial Average neared 10,000, a level it wouldn't reach again until 2009. Today on Forum, we look back at life on 9-10 and how it changed that next day. Islamophobia, all those flags, the surging popularity of Bush, and the more subtle changes in our culture. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I know where I was on September 10th, 2001. I was a college student living in my dorm in Massachusetts, and the semester had just started, and I was looking forward to a show by The Strokes, who were a new band back then, that they were having later that month. So much about the world was about to change, and it takes a real effort to recover that time. Today's show is going to be a mix of looking at the historical moment that came around September 11th. It wasn't just the wars and surveillance that kicked into high gear after the planes hit the Twin Towers. Every root and branch of American society seemed to change, sometimes in obvious ways and other times behind the scenes, only to be revealed by later investigation. What I remember most about the days afterward were the flags. They were everywhere and on everyone. And in the months and years that followed, it was really the pieties around the military that were most galling for me. Our troops could do no wrong in those early years, and anyone who said they could was labeled an enemy of America. As someone raised by my parents on Platoon and Apocalypse Now, it was like a malevolent amnesia had swept the country. But I also know that we all saw 9-11 from our own perspectives. And I want to hear from you on the show today. What was the top of your mind on September 10th, 2001? How did your world change that next day? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Of course, you can email your stories, your questions, your comments to forum at kqed.org. Joining me to share their perspectives on life pre and post 9-11, we have a great panel. First, we have Wajahat Ali, a playwright columnist at the Daily Beast and a senior fellow at the Western State Center and Auburn Seminary. Welcome, Wajahat. How's it going, Alexis? Thanks so much for having me. Good, good. 
Uh, we also have Annalie Newitz. She's a science journalist, uh, you know, relevant to this conversation. She was also a journalist in San Francisco at the time, freelancing. She's the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and author of the novels The Future of Another Timeline and Autonomous. Welcome, Annalie. Hey, thanks for having me. We also have Emily Bazelon, staff writer with The New York Times Magazine. She's also the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School and co-host of the beloved Slate Political Gab Fest. Welcome. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So just to set the scene for our guests, I want to know who you were on September 10th, 2001. Where were you living and what were you doing? And let's start with you, Emily. I had graduated from law school. I was about to start a job in journalism. And that day was the first day that my baby son was going to daycare. So so I dropped him off in the morning. And, you know, I was obviously, like, very preoccupied with thinking about him and this new place. And I was a new mom. And one of the daycare teachers said that something had happened in New York, something scary. And the daycare director said, we, we're not going to talk about that. Like, I don't want that coming in right now. Like, the kids are here. You need to focus on them. And so I left without really understanding what had happened. Um, but it was, you know, obvious to this particular daycare teacher that there was something, like, huge that had happened. Yeah, yeah. Annalie, how, how about you? September 10th, what, what were you up to? What were you thinking about? Uh, September 10th, <laughs> I don't remember uh, too well. It was just an ordinary day. I was working at the San Francisco Bay Guardian, our free independent weekly that we used to have here in San Francisco. Uh, and I had uh, basically just started there. I had graduated. I'd gotten my degree in grad school. And I was writing about technology and science and thinking a lot about the future and where, uh, you know, what we called at that time the dot-com boom was going to take us as a country. And the morning of 9-11, when I got up, I was at my partner's house and she said, you have to see this thing. And I, it was on her computer and we, we didn't have a TV. We didn't watch TV news. We saw it all online. And there were these videos that kept playing over and over. I think we all saw them. And because we were on the West Coast, pretty much everything had already gone down by the time we were waking up. And it was so surreal. It was um, very much like something I had studied in grad school when I was learning about uh, you know, I was reading Jean Baudrillard about the society of the spectacle and, you know, um, what it means to have, you know, a simulated experience of politics that is totally mediated by, um, by electronic um, forms of communication. And there we were looking at the internet and seeing this unbelievable thing. And um, I, because I'm a giant nerd, um, one of the main things I remember uh, after that is just searching for information online mm. about what was going to happen next. And I felt so helpless. And um, Slovaj Zizek was writing for um, uh, the Village Voice at that time. And he wrote this article about how there was this gap in meaning and none of us knew what mm. any of this meant. And so that was what I feel like my next several weeks were about was trying to find that meaning. And um, and, and I ultimately did, you know, I, I, became much more political after that. That's interesting. Well, Jahat, how about you? Where were you uh, September 10th and had life changed for you? 
September 10th, I was a 20-year-old undeclared major at UC Berkeley, probably uh, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, going to the RSF, trying to work on my three-pointer, drinking chai and playing Dreamcast to NBA 2K with a bunch of other dorks. And then on September 11th, because I probably stayed up way too late playing NBA 2K Dreamcast, I was in my pajamas in my apartment when my roommate Essa knocked on the door and said, you got to see this. And I'm like, yo, it's like 6 a.m., man. Leave me alone. And then he knocked on the door again. You'll really have to wake up and see this. So here we were, two children of Pakistani immigrants standing in our, uh, you know, our living room of our apartment. And I saw one of the towers uh, burning. And like most people, I'm like, I, you know, you were just sitting there trying to figure out what happened. You thought, okay, maybe the pilot, uh, there was some bad coordinates. Oh my God, you know, maybe they were trying to land at LaGuardia and something happened. And then when the second plane hit the second tower, immediately, I think most of us who were watching realized, oh God, this is coordinated. And then on the scroll at the bottom, once they started writing, you know, Osama bin Laden or Al Qaeda could be involved. I did, uh, I called the minority prayer and the minority prayer is what many people of color, uh, the prayer that many people of color do when there is a, a, a terror attack is like, please let it be a white person. And the reason that for that is not because we dislike white people, hate white people, want like anything bad to happen to white people, it's because we kind of realize as students of American history, Whenever there's like a person of color who does it, it's not just the person, the individual who is indicted. It's the entire community that gets hazed. And the interesting thing was, I remember sitting there in my pajamas and I closed my eyes and I could see the next 10 years very clearly. Mm. And what I saw was hazing. I saw bloodlust. I saw war. I saw panic. And uh, as the kids say, FML, Alexis, because mm. I was... Uh, a student leader of the Muslim Student Association at that time. And I, uh. you know, people say, oh, Muslims knew what was going to happen, you know, the conspiracy theory. I'm like, no, 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 no. If God forbid we knew what was going to happen, I would have joined the Indian Student Association and learned how to do Bhangra. Uh, but I remember the next few days so clearly because immediately, and you mentioned this, you know, uh, I heard someone say this uh, in a sound clip, even though we were in Berkeley, the mushroom cloud of, of, of the, the damage spread. Uh, and immediately I got hate mail because my roommate decided to put me as the media contact for the MSA, the Muslim Student Association. Oh, and so man. all of a sudden I had to become and we had to become and anyone who was in this space had to become like the cultural ambassador and defender of this thing called Islam. And we started getting flooded with phone calls from concerned hijabi students like, should we come to school today? And so that kind of set off. What did you tell them? I mean, we didn't know, man. Like, look, I'm a 20-year-old undeclared student. And all of a sudden now I have to be an accidental activist, a defender of this thing called Islam. The chancellor of the university called us and wanted a meeting with the five of us of the Muslim Student Associations. So we went and met the chancellor. Uh, the, the chancellor said, listen, what can we do to protect you? But at the same time, they asked, are you guys planning to do something? Like, in the sense, cause some ruckus. And we're like, no, no, no. We just want to figure out how to create a safe environment. And and the first person, I remember this, when I went out to Sproul Hall, there was like a, a just a, a, a pot, like you could just feel it. Like there was a, uh, the energy got sucked out of UC Berkeley. It was like a mass funeral. People were confusing in a haze. And then we went to Sproul Hall. People started coming out of Sproul Hall. You know, people started like just organizing. And I remember the first person that reached out to us when we had a, a tent out was a member of the Japanese American community from San Francisco. And she said, we have been through this in World War II. We know what's about to happen. If you need help, reach out to me. Yeah. And that was a baptism by fire. 
where the rest of us had a political consciousness like Annalie and grew up. And there was always a fork in the timeline from that moment on, a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11. Emily Bazelon, did the actual legal regime around civil liberties change immediately or did that take a little while to sort of round into place? You know, it changed pretty quickly. I'm not sure how much we were aware of it, but I think the FBI really changed its mission to being one about surveillance and intelligence gathering. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that um, Wajahat felt all that so acutely was this immediate sense that there was a threat, that it was domestic, um, that, you know, Muslims might have helped or might be helping with something else. Just a lot of inchoate fear. And I remember my husband really early on saying, this is going to be bad. Like, the, the implications of this are bad. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, because when America, with all its power, gets scared, when you combine the fear and the power of the United States, it's always bad. <laughs> like, mm. that is just um, an alarming um, set of circumstances because we had so much um, military strength, we had all this police power that, you know, our um, our freedoms started really quickly to be curtailed and we started viewing other people with suspicion. And it's very easy for that to start to spin out of control. Yeah. We're talking about September 10th, 2001, life before and after 9-11 with Wajahat Ali, a playwright columnist, Uh, at the Daily Beast and senior fellow at the Western State Center and Auburn Seminary, Emily Bazelon, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, and Annalie Newitz, a science journalist and author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And we really do want to hear from you. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. What were you doing on September 10th? How'd life change for you? Numbers 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your stories, your questions, your comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about September 10th, 2001, life before and after 9-11 with Wajahat Ali, a playwright and columnist of the Daily Beast, Emily Bazelon, a staff writer of the New York Times Magazine, and Annalie Newitz, a science and culture journalist. Annalie, I want to talk a little bit about the cultural changes. I, I think for me, this really came home when in maybe it was like 2003, I was watching an episode of M.A.S.H., And the way that people on MASH talked about the military, poked fun at the military, the sort of ironization of the entire military experience, it was so out of step with the way that American culture then was talking about and and the things that were being produced uh, about American uh, troops. And I just, I honestly couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is from the 1970s. And what have we we done? How have we lost this sense of um, complexity 
about what it is to have a military engagement. For you, as someone who's, you know, covered sci-fi, covered various types of futures, how do you see 9-11 changing the, the culture? It's a huge transformation. And, I mean, these things are always a little bit tricky to talk about because, of course, it's not as if, you know, you have a, a sort of national trauma like this and then very next day suddenly pop culture is different. You know, it takes sometimes years for these things to sink in. Um, but one of the interesting ways to track this is to look at stories that we had before and after 9-11, like, for example, Star Wars or the Terminator series or Battlestar Galactica. These are all great examples of uh, stories that kind of bridge that gap. And all of them undergo really interesting shifts um, in the years following 9-11. And I think that we really start to see um, it's really around, say, 2007, 2008, that we start to find out what our new vision of the future is as we um, explore it through science fiction. So let me pick on Battlestar Galactica for a minute, which when it came out originally in 1978 was, you know, it was a scary show about people fighting Cylons, who are the bad robots who are, who are uh, chasing humanity down. Um, but it's very disco looking. It's very shiny. Um, and kind of upbeat and goofy <clears throat> and goofy. And then we get the, uh, the new Battlestar Galactica, which was incredibly popular uh, starting in 2004 when it first comes out um, and then going into the TV series. And this is a story that completely shifts the tone of the original. It's incredibly dark. Humanity isn't just being attacked by random robots from another planet, which is what happens in the original version. Instead, we're being attacked, humans um, in the show are being attacked by robots that they've created. Um, these are essentially um, uh, enslaved beings, creatures that are exactly like humans, except for the fact that they're made with metal. Um, and they are being treated like chattel. Um, they are being essentially, they're, they're playing the role of a, of a colonized group, essentially, in the show, if you look at the subtext. And yeah, they're pissed. Guess what? They rise up and they try to murder all of the people who have been oppressing them. But the thing that's interesting about that, and I think that we see this in a lot of pop culture, including in things like uh, even now, like The Mandalorian, which is the new Star Wars series that everyone loves, um, it's that the bad guys in the show are not treated as a single unified force. They're not some kind of great power like the Soviet Union. Instead, they're a huge number of factions who are fighting among themselves. Um, it's no longer us against them. It's who is us and who are them and we're all fighting each other. Um, and it's a very very much a hallmark of pop culture that you see during the so-called war on terror, yeah. where we're just trying to even um, imaginatively grasp who our enemies might be and understand that in fact, our enemy isn't, it's not one particular ideology. It's not one particular force. And so I think a lot of our allegorical tales of the future um, take this turn where um, the enemy is scattered and unknowable, um, but also that there's a yearning to understand them as well. You start to see a lot more stories where um, there's this effort to put ourselves in the position of the alien or the unknown and really, um, if not empathize with it, at least try to understand 
where they're coming from. So it's, and it's still happening. I'd, I'd say that's still a, a major hallmark of, of futuristic pop culture now. Well, and Emily Bazelon, you know, this is going on also within the American political apparatus, too. I mean, you have people who immediately turn to who do we fight and when and how. And then you have people who are trying to um, take a broader view of the way that the U.S. role in the world may have brought us to this particular place. Can you talk a little bit about how people went about trying to resolve those conflicts, obviously ending in lots of, well, multiple wars? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, George W. Bush as president really made the idea of American might abroad um, in the name of the global war on terror, the signature of the United States, and that it was pretty difficult for people who had a different view, who wanted, um, you know, to talk about energy independence or other ways of changing America's relationship with other countries, you know, trying to reduce all the anger toward us in, um, in certain other countries. That really just, I think, went out the window. And so, what you have instead is the global war on terror. And then you have the United States, I think, tarnishing its own image, not in fighting the wars, right? I mean, all our allies were on board, um, especially for going into Afghanistan, but you know, also in Iraq. And yet then you have the images from Abu Ghraib. You have the United States torturing people to get information. You have um, renditions, you have um, sites, secret sites, people are being held. Um, you just have the country really willing to go to great lengths, um, you know, lengths that are very much violating international law and violating norms the United States had not always adhered to, but kind of claimed as its moral mantle. And I think all of that in the end has been tremendously damaging and harmful to us. And it's just hard to see how 9-11 from the point of view of America's position, from our geopolitical strategy, um, really ha had anything other than harmful effects. Yeah. Annalie, you also have covered this. You said you, that you took a more political turn and began to like really think about the surveillance state within the United States. What did you see developing? Like, What were people talking about back in those early days that they feared would, would come to pass um, after 9-11? I mean, I think what all of us were <clears throat> terrified by was how quickly the USA Patriot Act passed um, and how it was, you know, clearly something that had been in the works for a while and that Republicans had sort of been waiting to trot it out um, and, you know, basically place the entire nation under surveillance that a lot of people didn't even understand. I mean, a lot of the electronic surveillance um, was a very new concept for people. Um, and I quickly, uh, around that time, I wound up um, leaving my job as a journalist and going to work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which is uh, a legal defense fund out here that does a lot of, um, does legal work and activism to protect people's rights online. Um, and at that time, uh, obviously surveillance was a huge concern for us. Mm -hmm. And particularly um, what could be done with people's stored data, which was, a, again, a new idea for people that their, their data was being stored on other computers, like, say, at Google or um, at some other company that was starting to develop what we now call the cloud, which now everyone takes for granted. Um, and so, you know, we were deeply concerned about how 
the government would warp these kind of outdated privacy laws that we had to protect communications um, and, you know, do things like just read everybody's email uh, if they wanted to or get, uh, you know, information on someone who was posting anonymously, uh, anonymously online and unveil who they were and, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, uh, target them for some kind of harassment or something um, or, or worse. And so that was the kind of thing that people were concerned about, I think, in the realm of what we call digital liberties. But one thing I want to add is that um, in terms of pop culture online, um, <clears throat> you know, social media really takes off after 9-11. Uh, and this is something I was thinking about a lot this morning as I was prepping for this show, as I was realizing that uh, Friendster, which of course starts in the Bay Area, and then Facebook um, really take hold of the public imagination um, in the wake of 9-11. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about why that is. Um, I don't have any hard and fast answers, but I do think that as people became um, kind of blasé about the idea that they were under surveillance, it became... Um, just more acceptable that you might put all your personal info online. But also these are types of, of technology that really lend themselves well to all kinds of extremism, um, Christian extremism in the United States uh, in particular, um, and other you know, political extremism and conspiracy theories. And I think it's, it's interesting that we see 9-11 kind of shifting the, the technical landscape and shifting people's interests online toward this kind of um, interaction. Peer-to-peer. -peer and Emily Bazelon, I know you have to uh, take off in just a minute, but final question for you. Do you think the failures of the mainstream media in the immediate aftermath and then the years following 9-11, um, do you think those also helped drive this decentralization of the media to these more peer-to-peer -peer platforms as people sought out something different from, you know, kind of flag pins on anchors' lapels? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing that seems clear is that conspiracy mongering, you know, about 9-11 sort of planted the seeds for the conspiracy mongering of, you know, QAnon and other um, elements related to the election, the January 6th coup. I think you can really draw a line there. And then you have to ask about the media's role. Was the problem that the media was not providing enough alternatives, that the media seemed kind of jingoistic? Um, or was the problem that there was this um, really pre-existing divide between a kind of right-wing media ecosphere um, that really gains momentum in the 2000s and 2010s that then has this sort of network effect relationship with social media? Um, I would tend more toward the latter explanation because I think when you see the um, changes in licensing rules that allow Fox News to really um, gain momentum in the United States, that there are these other kind of legal and structural forces that were in play. But I do think the mistrust that um, was bred in the aftermath of 9-11 and the way in which the media could sometimes seem to really be sticking to the government's explanation and not asking enough questions, um, you know, particularly of the Bush administration's rationale for the Iraq war. Yeah, that could certainly lead people to be seeking out other sources of information because they didn't think they were getting the whole truth. Yeah. I mean, reply guys to the New York Times still say that. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much for joining us, Emily Bazelon. I want to bring in uh, Annie from San Francisco. Start mixing in some calls here. Hi there. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. We can hear you. 
Oh, oh, great. Okay. Um, well, I guess the question was, what was I doing on uh, September 10th? I was preparing a an album to celebrate my second wedding anniversary, which was September 11th, 1999. So our anniversary has changed drastically. Um, I was also pregnant with my first child. So it's just really the whole time of year right now is really uh, tons of memories and really changes how you think about people in your life and who you love and yeah. uh, what the day really means. Was it a mixtape or a mixed CD? Oh, you know what? It was actually a paper album. I love your thought, but um, yeah, it was like pictures from our, oh, from oh. our honeymoon and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Got it, got it. Wow. Yeah. Um, thank you, Annie. Let's go to uh, straight to Hussein in San Jose. Hi, Hussein. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. No, okay. So I am, um, uh, as, as my name says, you know, I'm from Middle East. I'm from Iran, originally from Iran. Came here in 1995. And um, on 9-11, 2001, I was a student with my wife at Chico State. You are undergraduate student, both going to college, uh, to uh, university. And my wife called me early morning. Uh, I was at home taking my son to school, and she called. She said, Hussein, you want to turn on the TV? Something going on. I said, what's going on? And she said, something weird. Um, I don't know. People, they look at me differently. My wife is from Iran, too. Uh, but she said, people look at me differently. Somebody, you know, yelled at me, or, and she, they told me that's all your fault, all your fault, and screaming at me. I don't know. Something going on. Turn on the TV. So I turned on the TV, and then I realized that, wow, what's happening? So school was closed that day. So, But after that, you know, all the people, especially white people, they look at us differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to church. People at church, they ask me, what's going on? What's, you know, uh, what do you think about it? So I'm like you guys. I'm a U.S. citizen. I live here. I have a residency. I work here. I go to school. But, um, you know, my thought, my thinking, everything is about the uh, same thing as you guys. Until this day, any time I want to, I'm an investor now. Uh, my major was computer science, but now I'm an investor and real estate and all this stuff. Until this day, when I want to get the loan, so it's the hardest thing um, that I, I feel like. it. I feel like it, they, they treat me differently. They treat yeah. me differently because my name is Hussein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, changed my life. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Which I this was something you experienced also. Yeah, look, overnight the enemy became uh, this thing called Islam. It became a civilizational conflict between something called the West versus Islam, us versus them. And George W. Bush said, "You're either with us or you're with the evil doers." And it wasn't just those who are Muslim, as Hussein said, it was those who looked Muslimy. The first hate crime that was committed after 9-11 was against Balbir Sodi Singh, a sick Indian-American gas station owner in Mesa, Arizona, who wore a turban. And the white supremacist who shot and killed him wanted blood revenge against the people who brought down the tower. There were 19 foreign hijackers who brought down the tower, 15 from Saudi Arabia, two from UAE, one from Lebanon. Uh, and one from Egypt, and Balbir Singh, a sick Indian man in Mesa, Arizona, was the victim. Hussein, who's a who's Christian, was seen as uh, the enemy, uh, them, right? And the funny thing is, is for the last 20 years, when I go to Muslim-majority countries, they ask me sometimes, why does the West hate Islam? And 
for 20 years, I've been asked, like many Muslims, why does Islam hate the West? And the whole time I'm asking, who is the Islam and who is the West? And how come I've never met either of them? And it was interesting because the enemy was uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, just anyone who was Muslim or a practicing Muslim, but it became like this civilizational conflict of whatever this thing called the clash of civilizations, clash of civilizations, the Samuel Huntington thesis, right? And this included Muslim Americans, 4 million American Muslim citizens. The people forget now that there was already a registry in America. It was called NCRs, where they deported 13,000 innocent Muslim uh, immigrants, right? There was 10 years of surveillance on Muslims and Muslim students in New York. There was the attack on Muslim charities, thousands of Muslims, there's like a one degree of separation, we all have a story about this, were just interviewed by the FBI. And you know, not everyone, Alexis, is a lawyer or attorney, right? They know their rights. So there was this massive chilling effect. And one quick thing I'll say that Annalie mentioned this about the narrative, when it comes to pop culture, the utility and worth of a Muslim in America after 9-11, you were a good Muslim, if you were supporting the national security narrative mm. and you were potentially a bad Muslim if you weren't. And to see mm. how profound this was, if I may, you fast forward this to 2016. We're talking about now liberals, Bill Clinton. I was at the DNC right before he introduced uh, you know, Hillary Clinton. And this is in a 30,000 word speech, he mentioned Muslims. This is what he said about Muslims. I'm gonna try to do my best Bill Clinton impression. If you're a Muslim and you love America and freedom, and you hate terror, stay here and help us win and make a future together. And I don't know if you're paying attention, Alexis, there are like six ands in that conditional clause. And so our citizenship, our worth, our goodness became conditional if to as if we were helping the national security narrative. That's where we are right now. We're talking about September 10, 2001, life before and after 9-11. That was Wajahat Ali. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Stay tuned. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking about the times before and after 9-11 with Wajahad Ali, a playwright and columnist at the Daily Beast, Annalie Newitz, a science journalist and author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And we want to add Hina Shamsi, director of the ACLU's National Security Project to the show. Welcome, Hina. Thanks so much, Alexis. Thanks for having me. So obviously for an organization like the ACLU, 9-11 was a real hinge moment. Do you think that the things that happened that day were more or less permanent changes uh, in the loss of civil liberties? Or do you think that over this last 20 years, some things uh, have gotten better or worse? Uh, wow, you're going right to the... Just right question. to Let's I just think, do it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> sorry. Overview. Um, no, it's a great question. I think that um, that there has been so much and long-lasting harm uh, that came from our government's response to 9/11 in ways that you know, as a student of American history, I I I knew that you know our country has 
never been perfect and moreover that it's responded to traumatic events by clamping down on civil rights and liberties and only come to regret it after terrible human costs. You know, just think of Japanese American incarceration. But I certainly, you know, didn't think at the time that the costs would have been so great and so long lasting, you know, just in terms of the law, you know, political leaders, cynical fear mongering in the years after 9-11. Yeah, you remember the security, the color coded security alerts? Absolutely. And and security theater um, that responded to legitimate fear in, in, in our communities, but then launched what we're now calling forever wars and destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives, both abroad and at home. And as I think some of your earlier um, guests and, and uh, callers were saying, essentially it's, it's primarily impacted brown, black and Muslim people in terms of who's been targeted and who the country has escalated in seeing through a security lens threat. Yeah. Commenter, uh, listener Judd writes, I vaguely recall John Poindexter advocating for internet and telephone records data mining in the months after 9-11. For privacy reasons, most people were aghast at the suggestion, but over time, now 2021, data mining became an everyday process, all legal challenges considered. Do you think that where we've gotten to here, Hina, is sort of a a worst case scenario for how normalized data mining really did become, both in the commercial sphere and uh, by governments, and because we know that the government actually accesses the commercial uh, data, that there's not really a big distinction between those two things. Well, you know, I think I think that we're still in the middle of that reckoning and understanding how to deal with our privacy rights in the digital age and how to maintain a commitment to privacy and against government surveillance, which because of the expansion of technical tools um, includes government agencies, both in cooperation with commercial entities, including through data mining and not. But I think the bigger bigger picture um, story here is that, part of what the concern about data mining goes to is that everyone on the planet is generating more data than ever before about our location, our associations, most intimate details of our lives. And the danger of this kind of surveillance becoming normalized is that the very technologies we depend on are going to be used against us. Um, you know, there was, I, I do, you know, I, you had an earlier question about have things improved. And I th- think because of resistance, uh, including amongst communities and whistleblowers, um, things have improved somewhat. So to, you know, if you think about 2013, right, Ed Snowden's revelations about the breadth of US government surveillance shocked the world, took my breath away. Um, And there were responses that made improvements, but not far enough. And I think that's, that's kind of where we are in a lot of these issues, which is some improvements. We no longer have CIA black sites abroad. Uh, Systemic torture uh, has um, ended, although its manifestations continue. So as I look ahead, the work is what's ended and what more needs to be done. Let's bring in Sandy from Redwood City. Sandy, welcome to the show. 
Hello. This is Sandy Farley. And I was in, uh, you know, your conversation has gone beyond where I was. You were talking about, you know, people's initial reactions and so forth. I happen to have been in Pristina, Kosovo the weekend before, uh, attending the board meeting for an an NGO that was doing some relief work there. And I'd been there in 99, immediately following the wars there and helping with the refugee resettlement. And on 9-11, I was told in the the middle of the afternoon there that uh, uh, I shouldn't be planning on flying home necessarily uh, the next two days because there were airplanes flying into buildings in New York City. And I said, you're crazy. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then we... And then uh, uh, our intermittent power was restored, and we got the hold of the BBC broadcast and saw uh, the films. Oh, my God. And that night, the host family I was staying with and friends of ours um, took me out to dinner, and everybody in the restaurant came around and and said how sorry they were. And here I was in the middle of an Islamic country. These are Muslims, and they're telling us, you know, and, you know, and these are people who have experienced so much grief and so much war, and they were experiencing such sympathy, expressing such sympathy. I was just amazed, appalled, and appreciative of the great gift they have. And I just said, I hope our president doesn't do anything stupid. Well, well he did. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Sandy. Um, Annalie, I want to... Um, toss a question to you about the local setting here. Pam writes, what I remember right after September 11th, besides the shock and empty skies, was that we in the Bay Area were very quickly out of sync with the rest of the country about what the response should be. I remember friends sewing flags with a picture of Earth on them and those flags popping up all over Berkeley and Albany. Soon after, those Barbara Lee Speaks for Me bumper stickers were everywhere. Obviously, we had Barbara Lee on earlier, the one vote against uh, presidential authorization to use force uh, in the global war on terror. Emily, do you remember San Francisco being, feeling, acting differently from other places? I definitely remember that it felt like, I mean, as it often does here, to be fair, um, it felt like we were in this kind of bubble. And I think part of it was that we were so far away physically from the attacks. Um, I knew plenty of people who were just as leftist as I was, who were living in New York, who, you know, they were understandably a lot more shaken. It was a lot more immediate. Um, And here you know, we kind of had the space to to think about it a little bit, uh, you know, more, um, I think, more clearly, maybe, or, or just, you know, from a, you know, safer remove. And so, yeah, of course, immediately, people were protesting the USA Patriot Act, people were, you know, protesting the idea of militarizing in response. Um, and, you know, I think, it's similar to what we experienced during the Trump administration, where, you know, it really felt like the Bay Area was um, a safe place, but also at the same time, potentially a place that could be under siege. I mean, I feel like after 9-11, there was always that worry that, you know, if we kind of got into some kind of total war, which didn't seem out of the question, that, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area would be forced to shut the hell up. And that that might be something really terrifying to witness. Let's bring in Richard from New York City. Hi, Richard. Can you hear me? 
Um, Kathy in Oakland. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Welcome. Thanks. So you were asking about where we were yeah. on 9-11. Um, I was an instructor at Chabot College in Hayward and driving to school, and I would be facing 40 students in at least five classes that day, and so I was reviewing how I would approach this whole topic of the attacks and what it meant, and trying to gear myself up for, at the same time, being supportive and being myself and having the same fears and anxieties that we all had that day. Excuse my still responsiveness to that day. Um, And I was just trying to figure out what to say, how to say it, how to be understanding at the same time as an instructor and responsible for the way that my students would be handling this situation for days to come. Do you think that the Bay Area reacted differently? How did your students react once you once you got in there? Um, they were listening very attentively. It was clear that they were concerned. Um, they didn't seem as worried as I was. Um, I'm an immigrant from Hungary, and so as a child, I went through the revolution in 1956, and I had very personal um, feelings and memories about what that experience was like, so I possibly was more reactive than my students were going to be, but I was figuring out what I would say and how I would address my class on that day. And the most important thing to me was to leave space for them to be able to express their fears, their feelings, and to create an environment in the classroom that was accepting and tolerant of whatever people might bring to the conversation. Thank you for that, Kathy. Which I I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you were at Berkeley, and you were at UC Berkeley, so you were basically like at the San Francisco of San Francisco. And do you think that people reacted in ways that were out of step with the rest of the country, or do you feel like actually you were surprised by the way that your fellow students um, were in line with what felt like a very nationalistic uh, anti-Muslim response? We were out of step with the national security apparatus, with journalists, with media, with politicians, and we were right. I remember my first foray with right-wing news was because uh, we protested uh, this cartoon, this inflammatory cartoon that was published uh, in the Berkeley newspaper. And I did some quote, and then Bill O'Reilly talked about it. And Michelle Malkin, who's written a book in defense of internment and now pals around with white nationalists, wrote an article said, Berkeley, some kind of foreign country. And we were the first folks who, if you remember, did a pre-war protest because we knew what was going to happen. So thousands came out uh, to protest and march against the war on terror, which now has become this endless war on terror. We were against the Patriot Act. We warned about the war on Iraq, right? We talked about our civil liberties. And the students in that community of Berkeley, you know, primed through years and decades of political activism, were students of history and critical 
uh, of the war machine and kind of knew what was going to happen. And as a result, in that time, we were seen as the enemies of America. I mean, let's not forget, America was so crazy, Alexis, that they turned on the Dixie Chicks, like the whitest, cutest women in America, because Natalie Maines, all she said, the lead singer of the Chicks, all she said was, I'm embarrassed that George W. Bush is from Texas. Bye, y'all. That's all she said. And this country took tractors over the CDs of the Dixie Chicks, who were the biggest band at that time. So imagine how they looked at us. And, and a great microcosm of that, and I'm glad you mentioned her, was Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who was the sole no vote on the authorization to use military force. And she will tell you to this day the amount of hate mail and death threats she got. But 20 years later, she was right. We were right. The sad part was for us is that we couldn't convince the gatekeepers or those who were influencers to steer their policy, both domestic and foreign, in a way that would not harm America. And the war on terror did that. It harmed us. We turned against ourselves. But unfortunately, and I have to mention this as we near the 20th anniversary, what pains me, Alexis, and many things pain me, is all the architects and the cheerleaders of that war on terror, they failed up. Every single one failed up. But hopefully we can learn from the mistakes. Yeah. Um, commenter writes, Sandra writes, I turned 11 two weeks after September 11, 2001. It felt like adults were making more thoughtful decisions about whether to shield what was going on from children younger than me. Kids any older than me seemed to be having more honest and open conversations with their parents and teachers to process together what was going on. It felt like kids my age were just kind of left to their television screens for what felt like six months of a nonstop climactic scene of a horror film. And then we all went through puberty and came of age in what was then coined a post 9-11 world where the culture was dominated by the events of that day, but we were left to our own devices to make sense of it and process what happened. Man, that's a great comment, Sandra. I, I, and I want to go to you, Annalie, as sort of a cultural critic and, and thinker about symbols. I think one of the things that's been really difficult and in, in which that comment identifies like so perfectly is that that day is really defined by basically a few like loops of film and there were so many other things going on in the world. There's so much subtext that, that led up to that moment um, in Afghanistan, around the world, in, within the American empire. And then there's so many things that came out of it. And yet they're really, it kind of all passes through this strange portal that's like literally just a few uh, pieces of media. How, how have you thought about that over time? a great question. And I think you're right that in for people in the United States, those images of the buildings on fire in New York um, really did define everything that came after, which is pretty typical American empire stuff, because it's all about, you know, look how we were injured. Okay, it's true. We wound up, you know, murdering, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people elsewhere in the world. But, you know, the really sad thing is like this one moment when there was, you know, an act of uh, aggression on our soil. Um, and let's keep returning to that over and over again. Um, but that um, the, the text that you read um, from that listener really made me think about how um, in terms of pop culture, one of the defining narratives for young people after 9-11 were the Hunger Games books, um, which later became these popular films about a post-apocalyptic world where America is long gone. Um, people are living in this uh, distant future where, um, you know, climate change and food shortages have left people, um, you know, bereft and basically incredibly impoverished and kind of on their own. You know, they're they're being incredibly neglected by their government, 
all the government does is provide them with these violent uh, television entertainments like the Hunger Games, where people actually, where young people fight to the death um, to gain any kind of, um, you know, economic uh, mobility, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that tells you a lot about the mood that is set by these kinds of political fantasies, they lead to these other fantasies of, you know, futility, basically, and sort of imagining what it's like to live in the ashes of an empire. Yeah. Hina Shamsi, director with ACLU's National Security Project, really quickly with our last 30 seconds. I, I, are we out of the post 9-11 era? No, not yet. And that's because the legal and policy architecture of that era uh, of war-based, militarized policies and racial just racial inequities and surveillance is still with us. Mm-hmm. But I think what's clear is that there is a tremendous desire for change. If the racial justice protests last summer teach us anything, it's that there's a tremendous desire for change. And the question for us in the next 20 years is, what do we do with this? How do we dismantle it? How do we make amends? And how do we go forward? We've been talking about 9-11 with Hina Shamsi, director of ACL's National Security Project, Wajahad Ali, Annalie Newitz. Forum is produced by Tina Lauberg, Suzanne Britton, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Kimmy Akbari and Jennifer Ng. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.